Imagine, demand, and build a world transformed. Hello and welcome to the launch of TWT 2020, co-hosted by the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation. It's a little bit different from the hangover and germ-spreading extravaganza we're used to in Brighton and Liverpool, but as compensation for not being able to breathe directly into one another's faces, this year the World Transform team have been working absolutely flat out to curate a whole month of online events, workshops and discussions. That's a whole month. That is bang for your buck right there. And so uh, my name is Ash Sarka, I'll be hosting tonight and I'm not gonna be taking up too much of your time because we've got some incredible speakers lined up. We've got man like John McDonnell, we've got activists from all around the world and we've got a whole quarter of the squad, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. I know we've managed to snag some Americans for the evening. But what I, I do want to say, because I do have the benefit of a captive audience of around 400 of you at the moment, is that I want to highlight the story that was just so skillfully woven by Jack Barraclough's video, which you've just seen. Because obviously last year's election was, was devastating for us here on the UK left. And from Poland to Hungary to Portland and Kenosha, it feels like the authoritarian white nationalist right are on the march and making gains. But we don't have the luxury of licking our wounds. We don't have the luxury of wallowing, of mourning or of withdrawing from the world. And that's because coronavirus has laid bare the brutal inequalities of racism, of the exploitation of workers, of border regimes upon which the world as we know it is built. But these inequalities aren't a strong foundation. They're fractured, they're not stable. And just take a look around you. Power isn't as comfortable as it would like to be. And we've seen that with the rebirth of Black Lives Matter in the wake of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor's murders at the hands of police. We see it as our government begs us to resume long commutes just so the rentier class and pret a can keep squeezing money out of the productive economy. And we see it as a generation of students here four and one against an algorithm which would hold their futures hostage to somebody else's idea of how social class should work. And these are contradictions, these are challenges that demand new answers and new ways of organizing. And there's an urgency to this moment that we're all in, which makes the work that happens here at TWT of political education, the exchange of tools and tactics and strategies, all the more important. And now more than ever, we need to reach across the borders which keep us locked in our little bubbles and work internationally. And that's what tonight is all about. So without much more rambling from me, I would like to introduce our first speaker. He has been an MP for decades, but please don't hold that against him. He's been a gravitational force for the UK left. He's been our teacher. He's been our voice in the House of Commons. Please welcome John McDonnell. Thanks, thanks Ash. I'm really grateful. Thanks for introducing it all. It's going to be a good, it's going to be a good session. Uh, look, the coming months of TWT's 
a month of frenetic activities. It gives us all the chance that we need now just to stand back and take stock of where we're at now. And as you know, as Ash has said, it's been a startling uh, last 10 months, you know, the, from the loss of the election to the pandemic and now potentially standing on the edge of a, a massive recession. I don't want to push people over the edge, but I can't not mention the worst nightmare possibility of Trump being re-elected, which our American comrades will be doing all they can to ensure doesn't happen. Plus, it's right for Extinction Rebellion today to be reminding us that whatever is happening, well, we continue to face the overhanging threat to our very existence from climate change. So we really need the space TWT is going to give us over this next month to talk about, yeah, where we're at, but also more importantly, where we go next. Back in the spring, when the pandemic hit us, it was pretty clear that the experience of the pandemic itself was prompting people to reassess just what they valued in life. That's what a threat to you, your family and your community, no matter how distant, inevitably does. It makes you think again and look around. And people looked around and they saw, yes, yes, we need each other. But when also, they also saw that when it comes to it, we rally round and we support one another. And we knew then, I think most of us, that there was a real opportunity that had opened up for lessons to be learnt about the way our society, our economy, our politics and how they operated, but how change was needed. And the pandemic sort of act, uh, has acted like a pressure test on how our society is organised. The weaknesses and the failings of our system have been exposed under the pressure of the pandemic. Exactly as Ash has said, the way the inequalities in our economic system left so many people powerless and vulnerable to poverty and hardship. The way a decade of austerity had left our public services, especially the NHS and our caring services, so ill-prepared to deal with the pandemic. And yes, so many of their staff vulnerable to the pandemic as well. And how many of the lives have been lost. And often, you know, it showed the way the establishment politicians were not just incompetent, but acted with impunity as though sort of the rules never apply to them. So a window opened up for the talk of serious change. There was optimism that despite the tragedy of the pandemic, at least something good could emerge from the COVID crisis. And it's true. A serious debate was started on the change that's needed and also what's possible. Ideas have flooded in. And as a starting point, let's, let's be clear, there's been a, a firm rejection of austerity that we've endured for the last 10 years. And this led on to solid support expressed for the need for real investment in our public services. So much of the investment that actually we've been arguing for in recent years. And also it led to the call for proper pay for workers, particularly those who provide us with the care and support we need. And, you know, there's, I think there's been a growing shared understanding of the need to organise our society so that in a decent society, nobody should have to go without the essentials in life. Food, warmth, shelter, health and care, safety, transport and, yes, connectivity. And I think there's also been a recognition of the vital role that the state would play in marshalling the resources needed to deal with a crisis, to protect people and their livelihoods, but also to set us up for the future. But it's also been important, as well as the ideas, what's been 
well, absolutely thrilling is that alongside the ideas for change have been the campaigns for change. NHS workers demanding decent pay, opposing privatisation, renters, renters halting evictions and opening up a whole debate about the very existence of landlordism in our societies. Trade unions exposing the exploitation of the crisis by unscrupulous employers like British Airways and trade unions demanding not just ongoing job support, but stronger rights at work, the right to have a say. And of course, as Sasha said, the just magnificent, the magnificent mobilization of Black Lives Matter's movement to secure racial justice and equality. People saying we're not putting up with this anymore. And you know, even with the all the organizational challenges thrown up by the lockdown, campaigners continue to break out on such a wide front of issues. And it has been, it's been truly inspiring and motivation. To do what we can to support this campaign, a small group of us launched the Claim the Future project to help network the thriving architecture of progressive researchers, policy experts and think tanks to back up the campaigners, those campaigning on the ground. So they're backed up with a whole range of well, full research and ideas. And it ranged from issues like migrants' rights, employment rights, social care, and many, many other issues as well. But let me just sound a, a note of caution and some urgency. And that's, I think this month is, is a month of urgency for us. Unless we're active and vigilant, that window that we saw opening up for progressive change may soon be closing. And the reality is that there are some will be acting to slam it firmly shut. And yet I'm anxious, I'm fearful that they could succeed. I fear, you know, well, in fact, I fear the worst what could happen. The pandemic reminded us of the good values of care, self-sacrifice and solidarity, and which all of these should be the basis of a decent society. Unless we're careful, the politics of Trump and Johnson will swamp, well, will swamp the debate, will sweep aside the potential that opened up for change. And they'll reassert what are the bad values of self-interest, greed and division. So we need to fully appreciate what we're up against. We know in Trump, let's be calling for what he is, he's a proto-fascist. He has no respect for democratic virtues, the established democratic conventions and the institutions that are the bulwark of democracy the rule of law, respect for the truth, and also the prime duty of protecting the safety of the people you represent. He operates with impunity, accountable to no one, deliberately sowing division, and as we've seen again this week, even putting lives at risk to stay in power. But here in the UK, Johnson is just a more polished version of the same act, buffed up for a British audience and with the added British upper-class sense of entitlement. He's demonstrated the same lack of respect for Parliament, the rule of law and the truth. And so far he's been buoyed up, as always, by a supine, tightly controlled media. And to a certain extent, he's got away with it. But also just like Trump, without a care for the damage caused, Johnson will deploy division and scapegoating, especially of migrants, whenever needed to prop up his career. 
So we do need to recognize that we are in a fundamental struggle for the future. First, of course, we're campaigning to protect people from the impact of the pandemic and the associated recession. In practice, this means, of course, yes, exposing the incompetence of Johnson and his regime, but also means being solidly alongside supporting the actions of those in the campaigns, the renters, the migrants, striking and demonstrated trade unionists and the Black Lives Matter movement. But as we're doing all that, we must also aim to keep open the window to a progressive future. So linked to each one of these individual campaigns and struggles, our task is to promote the radical ideas that are emerging and that cumulatively are building up a vision of a remarkably transformed society. So over the next few weeks, under the auspices of the world transformed, we will hear and discuss and we'll firm up many of these ideas that will form the program of the left, that we need to win the battle of ideas and claim the future. I think what's so invigorating is that the progressive movement in this country and globally is mobilizing at scale again. We're back and we're on the march. Solidarity. John McDonald, the People's Chancellor there. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, from the back benches of the House of Commons to the front lines of housing activism, I'm so excited to introduce our next speaker. Samantha Napper is a housing activist with Peach in East London. She has personal experience of living in absolutely dreadful conditions in custom house, but has been part of a tenants campaign, not only fighting uh, for justice, but also securing wins at the same time. So Samantha, please take it away. Thank you. Hi everyone, my name is Samantha Napa. I'm 31 years old and I'm a single mum of two and I work for a finance company called Zopa and I've done so for the past five years. I've lived in Newham all my life, growing up in Stratford. Um, I then moved to a hostel at the age of 17. And after having my first child, I was offered a two bedroom property in Custom House. Um, you can imagine that was a major relief for me. You know, me and my son, we had a place that we can call home. But that excitement didn't last long. I moved to Custom House in 2011, July 27th to be exact. And that's my son's birthday. So you can imagine how happy I felt. I knew about Cannon Town growing up, but not so much about Custom House. Living in Custom House, it's been a roller coaster. I've met some amazing people um, who are now friends for life. And I've really grown up mentally a lot. To be honest, having a son in this day and age, especially in Newham, um, it's really challenging as there's nothing for kids to do. And I do fear for my son's safety at times. I initially got moved to Custom House by the council um, to my property that I'm living in now. Um, but this property was managed, is managed by Mears, who are another landlord. Um, initially, I wasn't aware of the small print and never really thought about long term what's going to happen with these properties, as I was told that the properties will be getting knocked down. So we'll be living here for a maximum of five years. And then after that, we'll be moved on to secure housing. Nine years on, I'm still here. Living here, I started to see a lot of issues, mainly rent, the amount I was paying and I, the fact that I kept falling into arrears, it just didn't make sense. And I was always in debt. I was being issued with court dates, eviction warrants. Mentally, that was very scary, especially having two kids. 
my main priority for them is to have security and not having that I was always living on edge I was always stressed out like I just never had peace and I was dealing with this all by myself so one day a neighbor um she knocked on my door we just started speaking and we came onto the subject of our landlord and she was also going for a roller coaster of stuff so she invited me to a peach meeting randomly um bearing in mind I've never heard of them um she explained who they are and what they do and what they stand for so the word peach stands for the people empowerment alliance of custom house so I went to the meeting with no expectations and boy was I blown away there was loads of residents living in the same fear as myself their properties were in bad conditions there was mold another tenant um her roof collapsed um almost crashing her son the list was endless and it was all paying ridiculous amounts of rent, which was really mind blowing because these are council properties. Um, so it didn't make sense. But the thing that really stood out to me was that we all wanted the same thing. And that was mirrors out of our lives. We didn't want to pay them. We didn't want to deal with them. We wanted to create for our families, better living conditions. Like that's all we really wanted. So hearing all of this from other residents, it was overwhelming um initially i really felt violated like and instantly i felt like no something needs to be done so the organizers of peach who are dan hero and des at the time they were so supportive they guided us they listened to us and they taught us how to fight the right way like i know how to write an email and explain something if it's not right but that didn't really get a response but when we came together as residents all of us crying for the same thing. The council had no choice but to listen. It was the impact of numbers. And what Peach done was to show us not to fear. There's nothing wrong with wanting better. And that's where the strength came from, because we came together, fought together, and we won together. We met with the mayor of Newham, um, directors of the housing of mayors. We protested. Even the mayor of Newham actually joined us. We made a film which has received over a million views and recently we've put out another film which has received tremendous support we have won a lot of things because of these actions but the biggest win of them all so far is having our rents cut by 60 percent which if i'm really honest with everyone it hasn't sank in for me yet no one will be able to save money have extra money living debt free is the dream but this fight hasn't been easy it's taken years to get here and when the COVID hit it was a lot for some of us especially in overcrowded accommodation, stuck indoors with kids and having to still work. You know, we have weekly meetings, us, Mears tenants, we're also known as the Mears cats. But due to the lockdown, we was unable to see each other, which for some people was hard as we have become a family. Um, but thankfully, to technology, we kept our meetings via Zoom, FaceTime, phone calls and the odd knock on the windows just to check if everyone's OK. We even made a peach, a peach kitchen, which served um, hot meals, especially um, which gave free food to people especially for those who couldn't go shopping um, as there's no supermarkets in custom house and this really kept our spirits alive as we knew that we wasn't in this alone there's times you lose hope but we have to keep pushing and that's what I've learned as an individual and also being a member of Peach we're pushing even still as there is a bigger fight to fight as the regeneration is happening in the area and this can go really wrong as seen in Canning Town for example Families were promised to move back to their homes. There was promised houses instead of flats. There was promised low rents um, and re they received the complete opposite and no one was able to fight for them. So the fight is now to ensure the whole community gets some control on what custom house will look like in the future.
such as council rent and properties, houses for families, youth centres for the children, places for the elderly and a better GP service. We have to keep pushing and expecting better. And that's why I'm a member of Peach, still fighting for my community and for more. Thank you. Thank you so much, Samantha. You guys are just badass, man. Thank you. But thank you so much for joining us. That was just, I don't know, that was a real shot in the arm. And I don't know about everyone else, but I really needed to hear that. Um, just to remind everyone that the world transformed is only made possible by your donations. So if you've got a few quid knocking about and you'd like to support the work that they do, please go to theworldtransformed.org forward slash support. And the link should be appearing in the chat any second now. It was so wonderful to hear from Samantha, an example of a community coming together to fight and to win and to talk on similar themes, the interconnection between uh, class and racial liberation. I'm so excited to introduce Travis Dupree. He's a trade union organizer who organizes with fast food uh, workers, precarious workers in the fast food industry. He's been involved in the strike for black lives and he is one of the leaders of the fight for $15. So big fan of your work. I'm just here standing. I'm going to go away now. Please speak to the people. Um, thank you, Ash. Uh, this is great. Um, so hi, my name is Travis Dupree. I work with SEIU in the fight for 15 and I lead our coalition work. Um, figuring out how we partner with folk. Um, like I said, so, you know, we had the gruesome murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota in June. And during our work with the Movement for Black Lives, they oft, often ask us, how can labor show up in the moment? You know, labor doesn't have a history of being a racial justice organization, but we've identified the need to show up in the space um, and even better to lead in a space that garners um, a coalition that cares about people's lives, right? Like you all are doing it all, it's happened all over the world. And like, like we saw in the video, like 2020, it really feels like the year that folk aren't taking it anymore. So we decided to do a uh, strike for black lives. And what we we're able to do was to have over 50 organizations go on strike in over 100 cities in the United States of America. Um, we have never done anything like that. It hasn't happened that way, um, particularly around black lives, the liberation of black and brown people. Um, so we brought out 50 groups and struck in 100 plus cities during a pandemic. And what it showed us, um, and I say us as the movement um, for black lives and the left in the United States, is that there actually is a pathway to power. You know, for the longest, um, our adversaries have been able to isolate us till we really couldn't figure out how to work together here in the states right so the immigration groups are fighting here the racial justice groups are fighting over here the climate justice groups are fighting here right and then like economic justice groups and labor are fighting here but what we found is that this is different because it's not just black people standing up for black lives it's white people it's latino it's asian like everyone is coming around saying that like if, if, if one of us is hurting, we're all hurting, right? So this is why the voices are so much broader, right? Are so much louder and so much more sustainable is because people identify in order to make a better country, it has to be better for everyone. 
So we really um, struggled with how do you reach people during the pandemic? But as we talk to people virtually like events like this, um, it's just an opportunity for us not to always talk about what we agree on, but to share our differences, right? And figure out that we don't have to focus on those differences, but let's acknowledge them and let's figure out what we agree on. And, and we're very, very excited how people are coming together leading to this election. Our opposition, you know, here in the States, we call them 45, right? Is very, very scared of a large group of, of people coalescing around a better country, right? As I talk to you now, he is in Kenosha, Wisconsin, where we had our latest uh, public police killing. And he's stirring up um, our adversaries and, and, it's, and it's causing violence. So I'll just close by saying this to you all. Um, the work you're doing is incredible and is seen all over the world. Um, it will not be easy, but it's very, very possible. But I will leave you with words, pathway to power, right? We have to come together um, regardless of who gets the credit. But there's a lot to be done, but there are a lot of possibilities. And your friends here in the States that work in labor um, are very proud of you and look forward to supporting each other as we go forward. So thank you and keep up the great work. Thank you so much, Travis, for joining us. It's so great to hear you speak, especially on that intersection between class struggle and racial liberation. There are Muppets out there who will try and make you think that those two things are separate. They are not. They are intimately connected. Our next speaker is, I think, our youngest speaker, frighteningly young. Uh, her name is uh, Laura Hother. She's a student nurse from Liverpool. And I'm so excited to hear from you. And the reason why I'm so excited to hear from you is because you're someone who wasn't relying on the election cycle to get politicized. You saw what was going around you during the COVID crisis and it led you to participate in the fight for a nurses and healthcare workers pay rise. So Laura, please take it away. Thank you. So as nurses, we know that the public lovers, but in our day-to-day -day lives, we're undervalued, we're unappreciated and we're overworked. We're burned out by this government and it's why we are campaigning. So I chose this career because I absolutely love it, but I didn't choose the cuts, the loss of a fifth of our pay since 2010, or the privatisation of the NHS. So we've continued to work in absolutely impossible conditions on the front lines, and we've been disappointed that we could not achieve the standard of care that we went into our NHS for even before the virus. So I'm Laura, so I'm a 21-year-old student nurse, so I'm organising for a 15% pay rise for NHS workers in Liverpool. So I got involved because I was just so tired of seeing my colleagues like absolutely exhausted and patient safety being compromised. And I was disgusted at the hours staff had to work just to make ends meet and the state that this left their mental and physical health in. And after everything I've seen and the detrimental results of the cuts and understaffing, it was time to do something about it. So the last few months, um, they've been emotionally exhausting, seeing patients struggling to breathe, their terrified expressions, having to try and talk to families on the phone about their acutely unwell relatives. And, you know, when you couldn't see them, it was really hard not being able to provide that same level of reassurance. Um, we also had restricted toilet and drink breaks. I had shifts where I couldn't take my break to change my PPE because it meant the next rotation of staff wouldn't have had any. So I saw the NHS Workers Say No page on Facebook and seeing so many people feeling and relating to the same frustration was like so inspiring and like ignited my fire, which didn't really require much. 
But the group has shown me what can be achieved when we stick together. So as on the 8th of August, we had 36 demonstrations with tens of thousands of new activists who had never even been to demonstrations before. And these were organised across the UK demanding justice for NHS workers. So with the support that the NHS has right now across the country and the government's weakened position, we represent a chance to defeat them on the left's strongest issue, which is healthcare. So we're demanding our 15% pay rise, which is a fair wage considering the 20% pay cut since 2010. And nurses and other NHS staff I've spoken to have told me how much worse off they are since 2010 and have agreed this is why we can't retain our staff. So we need to be able to recruit and retain nurses so we can run our wards and provide that proper patient care. We can't possibly uphold patient safety when we're understaffed and we can't meet demands of the service. And that was even before COVID. So can you just imagine the horror of what we had to go through during the pandemic when we had no PPE, we still had our 44,000 nursing vacancies and even more patients requiring one-to-one care. So really, like, everyone just needs to get involved. Our unions need to listen to us and get on board with this campaign. We are starting to see some movement from them with GMB and Unite backing us, but there's 12 more to go. If there are over 80,000 people self-organising for 15% pay rise, you'd have thought it would make sense to back us and follow the momentum. You know, they're supposed to be the voice of their members, so I don't see why they should hold back when they could go big and they could win. So across the political spectrum, our politicians need to listen to us. 77% of everyone in this country had supported a 10% pay rise for NHS staff. So failing to back us actually means failing to listen to the public. We've fairly earned this wage that we're asking for. We have yours and your family's lives in our hands. Like every shift is so unpredictable that you never know what's going to happen. And you have the skills and knowledge to notice, react and escalate to ensure that person is safe. NHS workers save lives and we make the world a better place through the way we improve people's health. So healthcare is our greatest strength, it's what people want, they need to be cared for and loved and every single fight that we face as a movement, whether it's austerity, corruption or systemic racism, the future of the left can be won by thousands of healthcare workers becoming politically activated and engaged. We're the people that the public trusts and replies upon, so imagine what would happen if your NHS workers had the pay and the political awareness to begin to talk about something like climate change or imagine what happens to housing if we begin to speak about it as a health issue so we're your best weapon and that's why you should support us so in two weeks time we're going to go out again we're going to take to the streets we need you to turn out and come and get involved on the 12th of September we're organizing within our workplaces to get more NHS staff involved and to take this off of social media and to a place where we can have power so we need to get our leaflets printed by your unions, hand them out in your workplaces, speak to five people following this meeting and spread the word to get people involved, steward at our demos, join our Facebook groups, NHS workers say no, and spread the word because NHS workers are getting organised to fight for our NHS and you should too. And that's me. Thank you so much for joining us, Laura. I'm going to be out there, 12th of September, right? 12th of September, nationally. 12th of September, National Day of Action. Support your nurses. Come on, what are you thinking? Our next speaker is a London-based academic, a spoken word artist, and is currently in Athens, so enjoying a bit better weather than I am right now. Um, she also has a new book out called Revolutionary Feminism, so you should definitely cop that. And here to sort of emphasise 
the international links which hold us all together from migration to the arms trade, the way in which this history connects us and creates these links of obligation. Please take it away, Rafif Ziada. Thank you very much, Ash, and thanks to everybody at The World Transformed. I was there last year and spoke at two panels, and it was so energizing and wonderful to be with everybody, especially the fact that we managed to have honest conversations about very difficult topics like migration and how we stand on migration. So virtual hugs to everybody. I know we can't see each other in person this year, but we're trying our best to create uh, what we did last year. Um, one of the first things that stuck out for me when I first was invited to do this was this concept of the world turned upside down. And as a Palestinian refugee, I can't remember a time when the world wasn't turned upside down. If you think of a child in Gaza today who's 13 years old, they've grown up under a military siege their entire life. If you think of a child in Yemen, the situation has been extremely similar. All of this is, of course, perpetuated and continues with the support of the entire British military establishment and the arms industry. This is something that's quite crucial to discuss um, when we're speaking about reimagining the world, when we, when we speak about imagining, demanding, and building, we cannot isolate what's happening within the borders of the UK from what's happening internationally. There has been a growing conversation about the role of British colonialism, of course, in the world. Um, for me, the important part about that reckoning of, with British empire and that conversation is that it's not history. It is very much a part of the present. Um, speaking very much from a perspective of a Palestinian refugee, um, it was British colonialism that had a strong hand in the, the majority of the Palestinian population becoming refugees. And of course, the UK continues to support and arm Israel diplomatically, militarily, etc. So I wanted to start there because while COVID has really laid bare the inequalities in society, built on structural racism, classism, and obvious sexism, when you look at who actually does the jobs in society and how much they get paid. It has also really brought up this conversation around international relations, how these relations operate on a global scale, how these systems of surveillance, because COVID, of course, has brought with it all of these structures of surveillance that we're meant to just accept, how they also operate on an international scale, whether through the arms industry or the surveillance industry or what after the Iraq war has become come to be called the homeland security industry. So for the majority world, COVID has made visible and laid bare those tensions that has existed on an international scale for a very long time. Of course, what has been threading a lot of this together for governments like the UK government is an anti-immigrant rhetoric that hasn't just started with Boris Johnson, but has certainly intensified in the last period, scapegoating migrants as an existential threat, vilifying them as a root cause of poverty, crime, terrorism, low wages, and unemployment, as if all society's ills have to do with migrants, immigration, asylum seekers, and refugees, and not to do with the decade of austerity that has been imposed on people. Now, when we want to reimagine a world, let's begin with what we have right now. We have a world where our worth, our ability to move, to survive, to study, depends on a piece of paper that a lot of people take for granted called a passport. 
I grew up without one, thus knowing exactly what it means not to be able to attend university, although you have the grades, but you don't have the correct documents. A society that values people simply based on these documents that you obtain is a society that devalues humanity itself. Because we believe a piece of paper issued by a grumpy civil servant is much more important than what a human has achieved. When the European Union says Black Lives Matter and they issued that type of statement just a few weeks into the protests in the United States, they neglected to mention anything about Black lives in the Mediterranean and the constant death of Black people, migrants, asylum seekers, and how the European Union has essentially worked to turn the Mediterranean into a killing field for migrants trying to make that trip. If we want to reimagine, demand, and to rebuild, having an honest conversation about borders and how fundamental they are to how class is structured in lived contemporary capitalism. It's not a coincidence that when the Grenfell Tower fire happened, um, there were Syrian refugees that were living in that building. Um, the fact that many of the skilled essential workers have also been migrants has is also a very deep and important part of this conversation that sometimes we forget to integrate. So again, I want to say that in reimagining, in demanding, in rebuilding, we need to get beyond this, this um, topic of just trying to say there are some good migrants and bad migrants. There are ones that are economically productive and we love them, but there are others that aren't. Um, there are legal and there are illegal migrants. We have to start with an understanding that the reason people leave to begin with has to do with capitalist exploitation, many times premised on excessive militarism emanating from countries like the United States or the UK. We need to understand that, that fundamental fact and bring it into all our conversations if we want to speak of internationalism as well. In the last period, as we were heading up to the elections, there were many voices that said, we just need to focus on bread and butter issues. Um, let's not speak about anything international, anything outside the borders. Let's stay in the safe zone. I don't think we can afford to do that anymore. We cannot afford to pander uh, and to live in some kind of nostalgia of simply going back. We need to be much more imaginative, think of ways that fundamentally question the basics that people take for granted, like a human being is only a human being if they have a piece of paper called a passport. We need to question those things and be much bolder in our imagining of a new world. And I just wanted to end with a quote by Raymond Williams, which I think is really important at this time, because quite often um, I get asked, well, you know, how do you stay hopeful? Things are so dire, the situation is so terrible, look at what's happening. Um, I've lived in extremely difficult circumstances where people continued under very harsh conditions of siege, bombardment, militaries all around them, continued to hope and to survive. So we are in much better situation in places like the United Kingdom, um, and we can discuss that term UK as much as we like, to really try um, to imagine things that are more critical and to work together uh, the quote I wanted to end with by Raymond Williams is, to be truly radical is to make hope possible rather than despair convincing. In this period of COVID, while a lot of people are veering towards despair, I think the world transformed can be discussing hope, building together, imagining together, 
on a new ground that takes our movements, linking them together. Um, intersectionality is not simply about the intersections within us as individuals, but the intersections of our struggles, not seeing things like class, race, and sex as separate issues, but actually their combination. And I think once we start to think in these more fundamental ways, we're bound to win. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rafif. I love a bit of Raymond Williams. Thanks for, thanks for chucking that in the mix. And thank you for joining us tonight. We've got two more incredible speakers lined up for you. We've got Dave Ward and we've got Rashida Talib. Up first is Dave Ward, the General Secretary of the Communication Workers Union. And I know you're not supposed to have like a favorite trade union that kind of undermines the project of, you know, worker solidarity. But I think if I have a favorite other than my own, uh, it's the CWU because what they've been doing as well as consistently backing some of the most urgent radical policies that are so needed is that they've been taking the trade union and putting it right back at the heart of community, especially during this pandemic. Um, so I can't wait to hear from you, Dave, please. The yeah, floor well, is yours. Thanks, everybody. Um, look, really pleased uh, to be with you tonight. Uh, the CWU has been a strong supporter of TWT uh, since its inception. And we are obviously very strong supporters of the Corbyn McDonnell project. We've demonstrated that over many years. Um, and, you know, for me, despite the election defeat, despite the fact that the pandemic um, has brought with it a, a public health crisis that's unprecedented and an economic crisis that looks like it's going to take us into the biggest recession that we've seen um, and we face mass unemployment. Um, we still firmly believe as a trade union um, that our job is to set out a bold and ambitious agenda. And that needs to be rooted in our values of universalism, of equality uh, and of collectivism. Um, but I also believe that there's a huge responsibility today on trade union leaders to build on the work that's been done in highlighting the role of key workers in keeping workers safe uh, whilst at work. Um, we have a responsibility to lead this particular fight. And for me, you know, I've always believed that the trade union movement um, should be able to bridge every single divide in society. We have that unique opportunity to turn campaigns into action. And I suppose for me, the biggest challenge facing the trade union movement and one that I'm up for and one that I want to work with other trade union leaders uh, to really push forward on is how do we mobilize an army of workers? There's still six million people that are members of trade unions and we cannot win these fights that we're going to face without collectivizing that, those fights. Um, we can take huge um, comfort, huge inspiration from the achievements of Black Lives Matter. Um, I've seen that mobilize people in a way that we've been unable to do in the trade union movement beyond individual trade unions and particular ballots for industrial action. Um, and, and I see a responsibility on trade unions to take those fights on. So the fight against racism, um, is, a, is a trade union fight, and it's one 
that we take into the workplace. But it's one that we have to link to the issues that we face in the wider world of work. And the CWU has been leading a campaign for a new deal for workers. And whilst I understand that individual unions will be fighting against job losses and are fighting against job losses now, and we can't lose sight of that overall overarching agenda. Uh, I'm pleased that the trade union movement recently has agreed the leaders um, for a new organising charter. Personally, I'm very open to new models of collectivism. I'm very open to the idea that, you know, the models that we've had for many, many years may not necessarily fit the world of work that we see today. We're open to working with all of the groups. Uh, renters associations, we take a particular interest in because a lot of our members will be renting. And if you're a member of a trade union, you can be a member of a renters association as well. So let's work together. Let's set out what our um, shared political and industrial demands are. Uh, I saw today uh, highlighted was uh, a report from a think tank autonomy, which the CWU has worked with and which the CWU put forward uh, for the four day week. Uh, and these are real objectives and should be objectives that can help deal with unemployment. Um, there's a, an economic argument that costs in when you consider the cost of unemployment that we're going to face to start thinking seriously, um, not just in the wake of the pandemic, but also in the reality that we're going to be facing a fourth industrial revolution, the onset of uh, artificial intelligence. These things demand new and fresh solutions and working towards a four day week for workers. We could start that in the public sector. Um, it can be an answer to the intensification of work that is causing work related stress. It can be an answer to unemployment and it will cost in. But our job is to mobilize people. And for me, this is the challenge that I want to uh, be part of leading with other trade unions. I think we can do it within sectors of the economy. So we've been pushing for common bargaining agendas where trade unions in a particular sector come together to root out insecure employment. We can do it as a TUC uh, collectively, but I'm here to say that to, tonight we have to work to fight for a new deal for workers. We have to take what's been highlighted for key workers during the pandemic and we have to take it further. And for me, this is the big message that trade unions must lead this fight, independent, frankly, of Labour. Uh, we support a bold Labour Party, but we can't wait for Labour to change things. Uh, movements like the trade union movements must step up now and we must be ready to work with all progressive bodies, um, partner with those bodies, but lead that fight in the workplace. We're going to make the world of work the number one political issue. We're going to make changing the imbalance in power in workplaces. There's some things that I could talk about with our own union that we will be doing, expanding the role of postal workers in their communities to support local businesses, to support people working from home, fighting for the rollout of universal super fast broadband uh, and fighting for a post office network that's still linked into communities 
the high street uh, and making sure that we can turn that into a, a post bank, an infrastructure bank. These are things that will change society. But more than that, we want to lead those fights in our own union and work with other trade unions to fight for a new deal for workers and all of those uh, progressives on the left, and particularly the project that John started out with tonight, the Claim Our Future project. I'll finish with this point. I think that there's lots of us who can talk about the theory of politics, but my point is this, trade unions are in a unique position to mobilize and take action to bring about change. Thanks very much. Oh, thank you so much for joining us, Dave. And please don't tell anyone that I said you are my favorite union. I say that to all the unions. Um, and thank you so much. And thank you to the 700 of you that have joined us this evening for this opening rally. We have, of course, got our final speaker. But before I even mention her name, before I even introduce her, I just want to say you can go to theworldtransform.org and you can get a pass for the rest of this festival. It's a month of events, of workshops, of discussions, and the TWT team have been just working absolutely flat out to put it together for you. There really are some incredible events. I do strongly encourage you to go there and get your pass. And also, if you want to support the work that they do, this kind of you know, political education that you won't find anywhere else, go to theworldtransform.org forward slash support and chip in a few bob if you've got it kicking about. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our final speaker of the night. She is one quarter of the squad. When protesting Donald Trump in 2016, uh, a MAGA type screamed at her, get a job. So she did in the House of Representatives, but she's not just some kind of empty figure or totem or symbol. She is a tireless fighter on behalf of working people. She's a supporter of Medicare for All. She has been highlighting the injustices and human rights abuses in the ongoing occupation of Palestinian territories. She has been a supporter of the Green New Deal. And please, somebody screenshot this so I can send this image to my mum. So. Thank you so much for joining us, Rashida Talib. Take it away. Thank you so much, Ash. Thank you so much to all of you uh, for continuing to speak truth to power. Uh, so much of uh, the folks I know that are chiming in are many of the activists and people on the ground, but you give credibility to the work that many of us who dare to run for office and dare to win um, are in these spaces. And uh, sometimes you feel alone, uh, but with the, the kind of movement work I've seen on the streets and with people that I've just heard from labor, um, social justice movement, our artists, uh, it's been so inspiring. So thank you all so much. Um, you know, I've been asked to talk about the rise of white nationalism and uh, one of the things and important lessons I know for myself and so much of the work that I've been doing in the Detroit area uh, is around the 2016 presidential uh, election. And what I've learned from there is, you know, one of the things that we need to do, uh, and I think we need to do it in a very quick way, uh, is you know making sure that the American people understand they can't afford uh, another four years of this ra ra you know racist and fascist regime. Uh, you know Donald Trump isn't a fluke. Uh, he didn't appear out of nowhere. He is a national evolution of the Republican Party in conservative politics in the United States of America, and then it's combination of decades of work, uh, he has destroyed the federal government and the administrative state 
uh, to deregulate industry. Uh, one of the first things he did was an executive order during the pandemic. One of the first things he did during the pandemic is to say, let's not enforce the Clean Air Act or the Clean Water Act. Um, he not only did that, he, he went to maximize corporate profits, no matter the harms to our health and our economy. Uh, he waged war on the rights of racial minorities, women, LGBT plus community, our neighbors. Liberals are wrong to dismiss him as some sort of glitch in the status quo. He is still deeply supported by the conservative voters and Republican legislators, many who I serve with, who support his work to install very conservative federal judges, uh, destroy Obama era regulations to enrich the already wealthy uh, through the Republican tax cut scams. He needs to be taken seriously uh, for what he represents. And instead, many are, you know, making jokes about his appearance, laughing off of his various comments and just derangement. Uh, but we laugh our own risk. Uh, we can't dismiss it anymore. Uh, we have to combat Donald Trump's fascism by focusing on policy, not personality, and making bold pledges to voters about how progressives will improve their lives. We will win by giving voters the belief that the policy we fight for, for, for will make meaningful improvements in their quality of life. We win by campaigning on universal free healthcare, free college, by telling younger generations that we will fight for their future with the Green New Deal that fights climate change, by campaigning to tax the rich to pay for a better life for the masses, making elections about personality, about who is vulgar and who isn't, will not deliver the electoral results liberals hope for. People aren't motivated to take the time off necessary to go vote, to jump the hurdles that working people face to participate in our elections because the, a candidate is nice. It's true. Uh, they jump those hurdles because a candidate embodies a better future. They are inspired by it. We also need to learn to campaign for our highest offices in a deeply grassroots way, meeting voters wherever they are and having one-on-one -on -one conversations that speak directly to their needs. That's how I won, not underestimating the power of the human contact. The mainstream, mainstream corporate media's mission is to destroy, distort the reality and manufacture content. We need to reach past the cable news propaganda and the social media manipulation and make a lasting impact on voters. I have always campaigned by going door to door to speaking to voters on their porches, on their couches, in their living room. They, they may not even remember a single policy item I talked about, but they remember that I had an honest conversation with them, that I cared deeply enough to spend my time with them instead of some time as some sort of billionaire-led fundraiser. When you make that connection with a voter, it's a connection for life. We need to see our mission as one that requires compete, competing in elections in every level, down to the smallest local offices, the local government level. We change our politics and move it leftward when we occupy power, when you'd be surprised how much power local offices have when the person in that position is willing to fight to challenge the status quo. Defeating fascism isn't something that happens one vote every four years. It's something that happens every single day in all of our communities, 
It is sustained and it is organized. It is supported by the masses. Politics isn't a game for us. It isn't something to be won or lost. It's a struggle for our lives. And as a person that is the eldest of 14, I've taken care of people all my life. And one of the things is being a child of immigrants, my father, fourth grade education, my mother, eighth grade education, grew up in a UAW household. One of the things I remember is how empowered my father felt every single time he went to the polling location, but why he met that candidate. He knew that person. He felt that person cared. And yes, it is that kind of simplicity sometimes that we, I think, oversee in understanding this movement work. And I just wanna remind all of you, it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter who's in Congress and in the White House at this very moment when you think about transformative change. It matters, I understand. But at this moment, transformative change happens in the streets when we demand it. Look at the labor rights movement. Look at the civil rights movement. All of those movements started in the streets and then it reached Congress and then it reached the Oval Office. So believe in the work that you're doing will change people's lives for the better. And I thank you again, all of you so much for allowing me to be in your space. And I'm so grateful again for your work. Thank you, Rashida, so much for joining us. I remember my mom and how she felt when she uh, went to vote. And she bribed me into thinking politics was important by always buying a huge watermelon afterwards, which I think uh, got me associating uh, voting Labour with eating delicious watermelon. And I've voted Labour ever since. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to all of our viewers. We've had, I think, over 700 of you. And there are so many of these events to come over the next month. So please go to theworldtransform.org, sign up to the events that you're interested in. I think there might be one or two surprise announcements to come, but don't quote me on that. Otherwise, uh, the organizers are going to kill me. Um, there's just plenty to get excited about. Tonight has been incredible. I want to thank every single one of our speakers for making the time to join with us tonight. Thank you for uh, tuning in. View the full TWT20 program and become a supporter today to help us deliver political education all year round at theworldtransformed.org.